Absolutely. A pleasure to introduce our next guest. Uh, he's uh, joining us from the University of Regina, where he is a grad student and a history researcher. And he's also a co-author of a piece at theconversation.com, which is why he's here with us today. The piece is called, Will COVID-19 Vaccination Enthusiasm Last? Lessons from Polio and H1N1. Curtis Fraser joining us now from the University of Guelph. Mr. Fraser, good morning, Curtis. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. And uh, talking about vaccination enthusiasm, Curtis, let me just fill you in on a, a bit of news we received here in Vancouver this morning. Uh, Fraser Health, which is one of the regional authorities in the area, has decided this is perfectly uh, in your in your uh, comfort zone here. Two pop-up clinics at the beach, Curtis. Uh, one at Cultus Lake on Tuesday, uh, and I'm sorry, next Friday, and next Tuesday they'll be at Crescent Beach in South Surrey. This is simply taking the vaccination program to where people are. And uh, I think every time we've seen one of these pop-up events occur in Vancouver, long lineups and lots of participation. So we would, I would say, Curtis, the vaccination enthusiasm level here on the West Coast, and I'm talking now not just Vancouver, but BC, is pretty high because in terms of uh, dosage, uh, uh, first shots up around 70%, a double vaccine close to 30%. That's that's a pretty good level of participation so far. What's the story in Ontario? About the same numbers? We're looking at about the same numbers. Um, I mean, what's, what's really great to see is that across Canada, we've reached uh, about 75% total coverage for, uh, for f- at least first doses among uh, Canadian adults and uh, closing in on about 25% for second doses. So like you said, like these numbers are, are fantastic. And uh, we are, of course, getting to a point in B.C., and I'm sure you'll reach it soon in Ontario, where we're now on a daily basis, Curtis, actually administering more second doses than we are first. And the the public health people say that's a good place to be, except, of course, they're still uh, still looking for those first dose. So now we're hitting almost a threshold of vaccination of the willing. So then there's the, there are two other groups. There are those who just for whatever reason say no thanks. And then there are those who say who say, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm there, but I'm not quite there yet. So, um, you know, but I intend to. That, that's the next target group. How do you go after those people? Well, based on like our findings from from the uh, from the research that we did from past pandemics, uh, vaccine decision making is a lot more complex than simply whether or not. Um, individuals believe in the the science behind vaccines. Um, when when I heard the news about Surrey and and uh, and other locations opening up more accessible clinics, mm-hmm. uh, that is that is that is something that we like to hear because um, accessibility is is a is a significant issue in, in actually getting vaccines into the arms of individuals. Um, a lot of people are living in fear of of actually getting the jab as well. Um, needle phobia is, is definitely a thing. Um, Definitely. And, I agree. And there's, there's a lot of reasons why people choose to get vaccinated or not. Um, so I think we have to just kind of uh, approach this one carefully. Well, let's talk a little bit because your, your piece that you co-authored uh, talks about lessons from two uh, major, major public health outbreaks in Canada, referring to polio back in the 1950s and 60s and H1N1, which we dealt with much more recently. 
what comparisons are you able to draw? For example, polio just scared the bejeepers out of the, the entire world back in the 1950s. And it was, it talked to us a little bit. I, I was, uh, I, I regret to say, I suppose, uh, I remember getting my polio shot in grade school, Curtis. Uh, and in those days, there was no Charter of Rights and Freedoms or any of that stuff. If you didn't get a shot, you weren't allowed to go to school, full stop. So talk to us, though, about, about the polio epidemic and the experiences that we, we should have learned from there that perhaps we didn't. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, polio, I don't think there was a vaccine introduced to Canadians that was maybe more anticipated than the polio vaccine. Like you said, it, it, it terrified parents and public health officials alike. And uh, there was really like widespread approval for the vaccine when it was introduced. Like you said, um, the, the program went off without a hitch among school children. Right. But the real challenge became uh, vaccinating younger adults, um, the group aged between 18 to 40. Um, we, we, we noticed a lot more hesitancy among this population group uh, in doing research. And by 1959, after uh, the, the, the Salk vaccine was available for about four years, um, only about 10% of Canadian adults had actually gone to get their full three courses of uh, vaccination against polio, which was quite low in comparison to uh, school-age children. So um, we, we kind of looked at why there, there was this, this discrepancy for, uh, for adults. And I think it was the belief that, um, they, uh, that the virus only or the disease only infected children. It was often referred to as infantile paralysis. Right. And for yep. that reason, adults didn't think that they could actually contract polio. But what we noticed in 1959, um, there were quite a few epidemics across Canada. And um, among these uh, infections, it was primarily among young adults who had actually avoided getting vaccinated. Ah, and then then everything changed because of the nature of the vaccine uh, changing as well, because suddenly you didn't have to get a shot. And that seemed to make a big difference in those days. Tell, remind us of that stuff, because, again, this is this is a part of uh, life for many of us, Curtis, but it's been a while. It has. And um, in 1961, the uh, the government introduced a new type of oral polio vaccine called this. It's often referred to as the Sabin vaccine. Mm-hmm. And this one you could kind of take on a sugar cube and a few droplets of the, the vaccine. Um, would be taken on a spoon and it would be quite enjoyable, I would imagine, um, to take the, the oral polio vaccine in comparison to getting the jab. Right. So we noticed that about 4 million Canadians in the span of, of only a few months uh, sought out the, the Sabin vaccine. And we noticed that a lot of adults who had resisted earlier appeals to get vaccinated became vaccinated after the um, oral, polio vi- um, oral polio vaccine was introduced. A little beyond anecdotal evidence that fear of needles is a very real thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think we also noticed that during times of crises, especially after those 1959 epidemics, uh, people swarmed those vaccination clinics. It was that realization that the, uh, that the disease um, infected a lot more, uh, a lot of different demographics than had it initially been perceived. So then, uh, that, but vaccine hesitation uh, was was a thing then, uh, and uh, the, it's complicated now by misinformation. The one thing that we didn't have in the 1950s and 60s was the internet, 
and social media and immediate global feedback for any thought or sentiment you might dare post anywhere. Uh, so the the uh, the ability to transmit misinformation in the 1950s was limited and still Curtis they went at it didn't they even back in those days there were there were uh, that element circulating misinformation we did see quite a few uh, 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 hints of that in, in the research process there was there's some articles taken out in in the Toronto Star and other various Canadian newspapers um, insisting that uh, the, the vaccine is, is is not effective and and uh, a lot of references were made to the uh, the Cutter Laboratories incident down in the, uh, the United States, a, a, a laboratory in Berkeley, California. Oh, failed right. To properly, yeah. yeah, they fa- they failed to properly deactivate the uh, polio virus. And actually, a lot of individuals developed polio as a result. And uh, there was a, there was a few uh, mentionings of that. Um, but for the most part, the Canadians were pretty accepting of the polio vaccine, I would say, but actually getting the jab proved to be a bit more challenging at times. Our guest has co-written a piece at theconversation.com entitled, Will COVID-19 Vaccination Enthusiasm Last? And here's a quick quote from Curtis's piece. Canadian enthusiasm for COVID-19 vaccination is impressive. After repeated lockdowns, long separations from friends and family, and economic losses, Canadians are lining up overnight at pop-up clinics and crashing websites with their eagerness to book appointments. Does this mean we can stop worrying about vaccine uptakes given our high number of at least first dose vaccination experience from history suggests not is co-authored by curtis fraser a history researcher and grad student at the university of guelph and curtis you talk about lessons from polio and h1n1 that could be applied to the vaccination rollout currently happening across canada to a great deal of enthusiasm you talked we talked already about the experience the nation had back in the 1950s and 60s with the polio vaccine but we've also and as you refer to in the title of the article we've also experienced another far more recent outbreak and that was in this millennium in 2009 with the the h1n1 vaccine remind us curtis of that time and how we reacted uh, particularly with regards to vaccination i think h1n1 is is definitely a a good comparison for covid19 because it was the uh, the pandemic that that preceded our, our current one that we're in right now Mm-hmm. Uh, but many may remember that H1N1 was not nearly as severe as what maybe was initially feared by public health officials. Um, relatively low hospitalizations and, and, and deaths from, from the, from the uh, pandemic mm-hmm. kind of led to apathy among a lot of Canadians and, and a lot of individuals thinking that they wouldn't develop H1N1 or that um, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't get the severe uh, effects of, of the virus itself. So um, there was quite a bit of apathy, I would say, from uh, from H1N1. And then uh, there was uh, there was an uptick when uh, there were a couple of child deaths reported that uh, sparked a bit of a resurgence in vaccine interest. But what happened now dealing with polio? We're talking about misinformation as a contributing factor, Curtis, to those to to the hesitancy that some are continuing to experience. And some of that hesitancy comes as a result of misinformation, which people have decided to believe. So what about in 09 when we had H1N1? Uh, 
by then we had a lot more ability to circulate misinformation. Was that a factor at the time? That was definitely a factor at the time. Uh, what we noticed in, in our research was that there were some claims that the, uh, the vaccine hadn't been, uh, hadn't conducted a clinical trial here in Canada and that we were relying too heavily on the European manufactured product. Um, mm-hmm. We actually had a product developed by a Quebec man- manufacturer um, for the H1N1 vaccine. And there was some criticism that they were relying too heavily on this European product and it hadn't been adequately tested, um, uh, especially on, on pregnant women and young children. And there were some concerns over the uh, adjuvant booster that was used in the vaccines, um, which was never before seen in Canada. Um, so there was some uh, rumors and, and, and claims of, of you know, not going through rigorous trials uh, during that uh, vaccine distribution. But I think uh, it, w- it was an interesting time for spreading misinformation because we obviously saw the uh, social media becoming a, a bigger and bigger factor during that pandemic um, and, and people being able to freely share this information to, to quite a significant amount of followers. Mm -hmm. Let me quote another, uh, uh, just a sentence from your piece here. Quote, many Canadians know someone who has gotten sick from COVID-19 and many have lost friends and family members to the disease. It's no wonder we are eager to get vaccinated, but enthusiasm may wane as case counts fall. And that's where we are right now, Curtis. We're starting to see significant dropping of case counts, hospitalizations, especially, uh, and yet... I think the X factor here may very well be variants. Now we're dealing with something called the Delta variant that is considerably more contagious than anything that has been identified with COVID-19 so far. And that's scaring the bejeepers out of, out of a lot of people who otherwise were quite happy to watch the parade pass them by going, well, you know, the herd will get vaxxed and then we're fine. But the, it, it, it's complicated by the preponderance of variants. What effect does that have, do you think, on vaccination enthusiasm? Well, what we noticed during polio is that the, the significant number of cases that were occurring in those 1959 epidemics were from people that weren't vaccinated. And we, we're seeing that again in COVID-19, where a, a vast majority of the active cases uh, across Canada are from people who haven't gotten the, the COVID-19 vaccinations yet. Mm-hmm. So, I, so that's, it is concerning to, to think about the, the, the uh, increased virulence and the contagiousness of, uh, of these variants. And I think that maintaining this level of, uh, uh, maintaining that this is still a crisis will contribute to um, people getting out to get vaccinated. I think that we have to remember that we're still in the thick of this thing and uh, and we're not in the clear yet. Yeah, and again, let me quote, the biggest challenge may be ensuring the continuing uptake of vaccines once the initial crisis has passed. In addition to measures to combat vaccine misinformation, public health authorities need to ensure that vaccines are readily available and convenient to access. And on that uh, matter, I think they're doing a pretty good job. Last You mentioned Surrey, uh, Curtis, and last weekend, you're absolutely right. They had a vaxathon out at one of their rec centers. We talked about it here on this show a lot, and they get thousands of people showed up and got their first shot. That's the kind of aggressive 
public health vaccination enthusiasm from from the authorities coming out that's going to need to continue uh, and and also the, a, 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 a continuing campaign to counter misinformation and that there's no shortage of misinformation do you think public health authorities are doing sufficient to combat that barrage the continuing barrage of misinformation I think they're doing the best of their abilities in combating misinformation. Um, unfortunately, I can't speak wholeheartedly on the on the campaign against misinformation. But I think that public health officials have certainly had their hands full in 2021 dealing with uh, both sides of, of, of the debate here. But I, I have to praise their, their abilities to get vaccines out to these remote and maybe isolated areas or even to areas that um, apathy might be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I've noticed uh, a vast improvement from H1N1 in, in uh, getting vaccines to Indigenous communities that were disproportionately um, affected by COVID-19, as well as H1N1. And uh, Indigenous Services Canada has worked very closely with First Nations leaders in mm-hmm. actually getting the vaccines to these communities. And that has been a significant improvement. And we've seen that um, Indigenous peoples have, have, a, have an exceedingly high uh, vaccination rate in, in comparison to the uh, the general Cana- Canadian population more broadly. Well, and of course, the general population seems to be uh, cooperating to the point where herd immunity is achievable. And uh, at that point, then it becomes uh, when the variants start to occur, uh, then th- that might create even more demand for vaccines. One final question to you, and this is great stuff, Curtis, and a good piece and, and a very important conversation to have. Let's assume, and I think it's a pretty safe assumption, Curtis, let's assume that the docs come together and say, okay, the only way we're going to handle this this business of COVID-19 going forward is with an annual booster shot, just like the folks out there get their flu shot every fall. They're, everybody in Canada is going to need to get a, a booster, maybe once every second year, but going forward, it's going to be part of the drill. Uh, once that's established, do you think we're going to fall in line and, and continue uh, getting our boosters at the current rate, at least of vaccination? I'm hopeful. I, I, based on what the historical records show us is that there, there tends to be a bit more difficulty in actually getting the boosters out to people. I mean, if you look at seasonal flu shot rates, um, they, they haven't been particularly high in recent years, at least. Right. So um, we're hopeful that, um, you know, COVID-19 has sort of altered our perspective of disease and, uh, and, and how we uh, go about eradicating that disease and um, I think we all, you know, COVID-19 will, will linger in our memories for, for quite some time now. And I think uh, just because of the intense fear and, and uh, shock that we've had over the last year and a half, that people will be more eager, at least, to, to, to seek out booster shots. At, at least that's my hope. Indeed. Curtis, an excellent piece. Congratulations to you and Catherine Carstairs, your co-author on this one. It's well done. And thank you so much for taking a bit of time out of your weekend to, to join us here on the radio and to talk about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure entirely. Curtis Fraser joining us from the University of Guelph, and his article is up at theconversation.com. Will COVID-19 vaccination enthusiasm last? Lessons from polio and H1N1. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.